The following is provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu. I'm going to front this young man. This is our last time together with you in the chapel. I want him to say goodbye. And he has smartly dressed, and I just, I just want to stand behind him because I think, I think he's a little better than me this morning. I want to say goodbye to them. Uh, it's very hard to uh, say goodbye uh, to people who are so dear to you. But anyhow, we have to say goodbye in order to come back. If we don't go, then we'll never come back. And this is how I will say goodbye. In Psalm 11, verse 3, the Word of God says, When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Do you simply watch and observe? Do you begin to film and take pictures? I believe the foundations of our Christian faith are slowly but surely being destroyed. I believe that the moral foundations are being destroyed. The Church of Christ is currently under attack You've heard of schools of thought such as secular humanism, um, schools of thought like truth being relative, so relativism, truth is no longer absolute, and many other such thoughts as sexism, um, they're all coming in and evading and invading the truth of Christ and challenging the authenticity of Scripture and the truth of Scripture. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And you are the righteous. You are the people that God is banking on to stand firm in the face of these challenges and say no and choose to live, to live uprightly and to, to live an exemplary life that I believe the rest of the generation, the generations come, we will love to emulate uh, your example. Um, I will read to you this little story, and then I will be in for landing. It is about an ecumenical gathering. During a recent meeting of different denominations, a secretary rushed in shouting, the building is on fire. Upon hearing the shocking news, the Methodists gathered in a corner and prayed. Remember, the building is on fire. <laughs> the Baptists cried, where is the water? <laughs> the Lutherans posted a notice on the door declaring that the fire was evil. 
The Quakers quietly praised God for the blessing that fire brings. The Roman Catholics passed the offering plate to cover the cost of the damage. The Congregationalists shouted, every man for himself. The Jews posted symbols on the door, hoping that the fire would pass. The Fundamentalists proclaimed, it is the vengeance of God. The Anglicans, now they get us here. The Anglicans formed procession and marched out. The Christian scientists concluded that there was no fire. The Pentecostals celebrated, saying, it is a revival. The Presbyterians appointed a chairman who was to appoint a committee. <laughs> to look into the matter and submit a written report. <laughs> but the secretary grabbed the fire extinguisher and put out the fire. You can be that secretary. You can be that secretary. We will take fond memories of our stay here. The archbishop said his baby, the last born, is 29, and so probably has no chance of ever sending his son here but my firstborn is 13, and my lastborn is 8. So I believe probably one of my kids uh, will one day uh, come over and uh, take the kind of knowledge that you have. It's been a pleasure meeting you all, and may God bless you. It was not a divine appointment for me to choose this guy to be my chaplain, then you can tell me otherwise. Thank you, Onesimus. That just is it. That's a good starter. Dr. Nelson, I want to thank you very much for the great gift you have given us. I'll take that and put it in my cathedral in the center of Kampala, and for many generations they'll remember our trip to Covenant College. Thank you. This young Nigerian lady, she comes almost five hours away from me. I'm in the east, she's in the west. She's spoken some things that I need to ask the Lord to understand more carefully. And perhaps I'll sit down with her and she can help interpret what she's talking about. But you are very kind. I thank you for your very kind words, very generous words, typically African. I bless you for being a torchbearer here on behalf of the continent of Africa. And may you stand tall as you witness to the God that these people brought to us a few hundred years ago. And now we have the seed to bring back and sow in the fields here. Will you stand firm in your faith? You know, I have been telling my Christians back home that when I die, the young men who are going to dig the grave actually have a lot of work to do. I'm six feet five inches, so that's a lot of work. 
But when they finished digging the grave and they laid down my body and finished up the grave, I have a man I admire in the Bible and his name is Enoch. I want them to write on a stone on my grave those words that Henry, Luke, or Romby walked with the Lord and is not because God took him. Henry Luke Orombi walked with the Lord and is not because God took him. That's Enoch. He walked with the Lord and he lived the shortest life among those guys who lived so many years according to the genealogy in the Genesis. Whether you believe them or not, it doesn't matter. But he walked with the Lord. And he was not because God took him. I desire with all my heart to walk with the Lord. A great guy taught me a song, and this is a song. I want to live right, that God may use me at any time and anywhere. I want to live right, that God may use me at any time and anywhere. I want to live right. That God may use me at any time and anywhere. I want to live right. That God may use me at any time and anywhere. And this is a prayer for you young people. I've already finished 58 years. I'm remaining with 36 because I'm praying God to make me live until I'm 96. Half of it is finished. But I pray that God may help you live right so that God may use you to be instruments, tools in his hands that can bring blessing to this nation, transformation to this church, blessing to your families. I just pray that God uses you and this is my last word to you, that God uses you. You're poised in a position where God can use you if you live right before him. Let's pray and let me give you my last word. Father, thank you very much for these, my friends. Since Tuesday when we came here, I have been sold out to this place. My heart is welling with joy. Wednesday, yesterday, Thursday, and today, Friday, as I have rubbed shoulders with these, your wonderful people, Father, thank you for this privilege. I ask, Lord, that this morning you will speak to us about hope for the future. That as we look at you, as the Lord who is relevant for now, as you were and you will be, help us to grasp something very fundamental that will make us live with a hope for tomorrow. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. I have been asking God to help me communicate to you. I've been trying my best, and I do hope that when I leave, one or two things that the Lord has spoken through the time I've been here, together with my chaplain, this wonderful, smart young man, will be picked by one or two of you. Perhaps not everybody, but just one or two people. That will be enough for heaven's economy. Who do the crowd say that Jesus is? They say he's a prophet. And he turns to his disciples, and who do you say I am? 
Peter said, the Christ of God. And then Jesus Christ began to speak, especially in the John Gospel. Yesterday we looked at him saying, I am the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 35. And last night we looked at him saying, I am the light of the world. John 8, verse 12. If you move on to chapter 9, verse 5, he still continues to say, I am the light of the world. If you go on to John chapter 10, verses 11 and verses 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. Then you push on a little bit to chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then if you move on to chapter 13 and verse 6, a famous statement of, I am the way the truth, and the life. And if you go over to chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. And if you swing all the way to the end of the scriptures in Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega. But this morning, I cannot run all through all those because I have to finish this morning. But this morning, I want us to look at the great statement of faith. When he spoke in the village of Bethany, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 11 and verse 25. I would like us to look very quickly at this scene in Bethany. A family of three, according to John, two girls, Martha and Mary, and their brother Lazarus, lived in a little village of Bethany two miles outside Jerusalem. A home, a normal home. And Jesus became a friend to that family. Jesus, when he came along, as he goes into Jerusalem, and if he's late, he would stay there, or even if he wanted to, he could stay in that home. They provided a place for him. They provided hospitality just like you did for us. Again, may I thank the administration for giving me a fantastic resting place. Beautiful place. I have been very restful. I don't think I have rested like that for the last two months. This was extremely good. Thank you very much. I had my Bethany way down here. So Jesus knew Lazarus, he knew Martha, he knew Mary, and he had a fondness for being ordinary. And that's a beautiful thing about Jesus Christ, he could just be ordinary. One day, according to this incident, Lazarus fell ill, ill enough for the sisters to send a message to Jesus, their friend, and they asked him, they tell him the message, they said, the one whom you loved is ill. Your friend is ill. Well, many of us, of course, when you have a need, you want to share that with your friend, don't you? If you have a problem, you want to share that with your friend. These two girls had a brother who was sick. Now, we are not told whose parents, they, who, who are their parents. But then they had this man in the family. This man is ill, so send a message to our friend Jesus. And Jesus receives the message. Now, contrary to what I would believe that if I was in need and I sent you a message, you'd come to me because I need you. Otherwise, I wouldn't call you. Jesus never turned up. Jesus Christ said to his disciples, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Does Martha want to know that? That doesn't make it really want to hear that kind of thing. My brother is sick. My brother is nearly dying. And you say, this illness will not lead to death. All I need is for you to come and deal with the problem when it can be saved. He never turned up. Two days, he never turned up. 
Friends, I, I sometimes think that God can be a little funny. Because some of us who have been in prayer sometimes for something so necessary, and you ask God and you pray and maybe you cry and you fast, and nothing happens. And you want to say to God, are you really listening? Am I calling the God who has ears and understands and knows my need? Why the silence? Why do you turn your back to me? Why am I praying to a ceiling? Where are you, God? What is happening? I mean, maybe there are people here who are frustrated. Martha and Mary were frustrated. When Jesus turned up, he turned up a bit too late. Martha met Jesus outside the village as he was coming in. Listen to what this desperate cry of a girl to Jesus was in verse 21. He says, she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. She is brokenhearted. She is saying to the Lord, you are late. My brother was ill, we sent a message to you, you should have come when you could help him. And now he's dead and buried, you are late. Jesus wasn't put off. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. She said, I know, I know, but that's not now. I need my brother now. Jesus Christ then made a very fundamentally strong message to this girl. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, friends, the term resurrection had not been known before. Martha knew resurrection will come, but not today. There has never been resurrection before. Guys like Elijah were whisked by chariots of fire, and they went and never came back. Even Enoch... He just disappeared. God took him. But there was no resurrection, so Martha didn't have an experience. Now, here Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And for her, all she could understand is, yes, I know there will be resurrection. It is coming. But no, Jesus said, no, it's not a futuristic thing. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Everyone who lives lives and believes in me, shall never die. And he asks Martha, do you believe it? Do you believe that whoever believes in me, though he's dead, shall live? And if you believe and you're alive, you will not die. Do you believe? It all begins with believing. She said to him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. But when, even if she said, yes, Lord, I don't think she thought it could happen today. Yes, Lord, yes, you are the Lord, yes. You can do anything, but I'm not sure even. I know you are the Son of God. I know you are the one coming. I know you are the anointed one. But the problem I have is now. My problem is I've lost my brother. My problem is my eyes are full of tears. My problem is my heart is broken. My problem is only two of us are remaining. The man is gone. But do you believe? Yes, I do. Maybe you could help me. And then he, she went to look for her sister Mary, who was also being consoled by the other Jews. And when she quietly called Mary, Mary came. And in verse 32, friends, Mary is crying the same. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, 
if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Friends, did they rehearse this statement together? Or is it the expression of hopelessness? A point where you just do not know where to go. There was a time in the regime in my country when Amin, the then very lunatic commander in my country, the president, arrested me. I had gone to preach. I was even in a house, and I was preaching to students, by the way. I sometimes got into problems with students. I was preaching to students in a house. So they arrested me, together with my congregation of 11 people. They rounded us up and took us into a police uh, station. We got at the counter, and this, these men began to accuse us, and accusing us so falsely. These men, we found them doing political meetings, and politics had been closed and burned in my country. These men, we know, have been plotting against government, and that is treason. I found myself being ordered to remove my belts, remove my personal effects, put them there, and remove my shoes and socks and everything else, put them there. My colleagues, the same, and they bundled us and put us into a little cell, room, that if I lay on my back, my feet would be on one wall and my head on the other, and seven of us were lined in that little room, and we never had anything to lie on except little sisal-made sisal -made mats, which are about two feet by four, two of them for seven people, and there we were locked in. It was a Saturday. I had come from seminary. Sunday we were there. Sunday morning, these very cruel, then-trained military men who only know how to kill brought a man in front, just in the corridor. The doors were all bars, and they brought this man, and he had no shirt on. He only had short pants, and they brought a whip made out of hippopotamus skin. And they began to flog this man as we were watching. They beat him so hard that his back here broke and blood was wetting his pants. And the man was crying for mercy and we were made to watch what was happening. When he finished beating this man, he turned to us. He said, have you seen? You are going to go the same way. We were locked in there Sunday, Monday, and they would never give us food. They would never even allow us to go to the bathroom, by the way. If you wanted to do it, they'll bring a bucket outside, outside the, the gate there. Do it if you can. It was like we reached a dead end and there were uncertainties. We could hear groaning. People were groaning and they were being beaten to death. We didn't know what would have happened next to us. It was a very, very tough time. Now, thank God we are not the only people who went into prison because of the gospel. But there is time when you can be put up in a very tight situation and you want to ask, Lord, where are you? What can I do? Where are you? You flung open the prison door for Peter and his colleague. What's happening? Now, Mary was crying. Mary was in pain and she was weeping. And she came to Jesus Christ, said the same thing. If you had been here, my brother would have not died. Why are you late? We asked for you early when he could have been helped. You didn't come. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to, to them, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. Now the verse that is so powerful is verse 35 that has only two words. Jesus 
wept. Jesus wept. Beloved friends, we have the Lord who identify with pain of humanity, who grieves together with us, who agonizes over our suffering and over our pain, familiar with suffering, familiar with pain. He understands our perplexities. He knows when we are stuck up. He knows when things are not working. He knows when there is tension and conflict in our minds. He knows when there are problems because he himself has gone through that. He wept. I thank God I have a God who can weep with me. That he will understand me enough to weep with me. Was he weeping because he was caught up in hopelessness? Was he weeping because he doesn't know what would happen to Lazarus? Why was he weeping? He was weeping because Mary was weeping. He was weeping because the Jews were weeping. He was weeping because they had come to the dead end of life. When death strikes, everything that we know is gone. When death comes to us, our pride evaporates. When death is on the door, whatever we have achieved is finished. Our education is finished. Our money is useless. Nothing can, can, can annul death. Because of the hopelessness of humanity, and you could see that these girls and these mourners had come to the end of their effort. He wept with them, not because he didn't know what next to do. And then he said, where did you lay him? And so they went and, and then he got to the, to the tomb. Then he's going to tell them to do what is very difficult. Roll away the stone. Martha protested. He said, Lord, he has been in there for four days, dead and rotting, and so he should be smelling. He said, didn't I tell you that if you believe you will see the glory? Rolled away the stone. And after the stone was rolled away, he had a prayer. He prayed. And I love this prayer because this is so beautiful. Look at it, verse 41. This is the prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Father, I thank you that you have already heard me. I knew that you always hear me. Jesus and the Father had such an intimate relationship that he knew what it is to walk in constant fellowship with his Father. He knew that he understood his Father and his Father understood him. He knew that he was walking in the will of the Father and therefore there is harmony, no contradiction. He knew that whatever he asked the father, the father would give. But he's asking for the sake of the people who are standing there that they may believe God sent him. And so he's praying a prayer of thanksgiving to our people who are mourning. Jesus, an amazing man, he never attended a funeral. He always causes trouble when there is a funeral. One day there was a boy of a, a widow of Nain the bear was being taken, and he met these mourners going to the burial. He stopped them. He called back the life of the young man. He sat up. People wiped away their tears and began to smile in joy and gave back the boy to the mother. He walked into the home of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and a little girl was already dead and frozen and cold. He walked in there with his disciples, only three, the mother, the father, into the room, he picked the girl by the hand and he said, little girl, get up. The tears of pain turned into the tears of joy. And now in Bethany, something is happening. 
Here, the two girls who were crying, the mourners who had come to cry, in the days of Jesus, there were mourners who would be hired to cry professionally to help you really cry, which is good, actually. Because crying is good to the system. Jesus turned their crying or pain into their cry of joy, tears of joy. And as he stands before the open tomb of Lazarus, he speaks with a voice that is powerful, a powerful voice. He called his friend by name. He's not going to say, dead man, get up. No. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. A voice that shook the very foundation of the dead. A voice that brought back Lazarus to the dead body. A voice that transformed the body. Lazarus opened his eyes. Lazarus, Lazarus got up. Lazarus walked and came. All bound out. Did he come on time? Yes. Why would he come so late? Because he wanted the glory of the Lord to be revealed. Friends, this is hope for you. Some of you maybe, probably, are struggling in many ways and you just do not know what God's mind is about something. And maybe you cried, maybe you prayed, maybe you are doing all kinds of things and you cannot get ahead where at all. You know the Lord God doesn't wear a watch like you do and hasn't got a calendar like I have? That the timing of God is totally different to mine. And one of the things that God teaches a believer is to be patient to wait for the timing of God. Listen. Jesus, he comes at the right time. Jesus, he comes at the right time. He never delays, he never hurries, but he comes at the right time. He never delays, he never hurries, but he comes in the right time. When you are worried, he comes at the right time. When you're in pain, he comes at the right time. He never delays, he never hurries, but he comes at the right time. He never delays, he never hurries, but he comes at the right time. The timing of Jesus is amazing. There are certain times he comes when you have lost all hope. But he'll come all the same. He'll come to do things when you actually think it is gone. You remember when they were going with his disciples across the sea. And the storm came suddenly on the, on the sea. And the boat began to fill. The boat was tossed up and down. And seasoned men like Simon Peter and Andrew and John and James were screaming. These are seasoned fishermen. They are screaming. And they thought all was lost. And then they called to him. They said, Lord, don't you care? Of course he cares. He got up and he stopped the wind. Stop. Be still. Just at the nick of time, when, when Peter thought it was finished, he got up. I want to speak to your life today. That if you thought hope is gone, 
you can still hope that he who cares enough to cry with you and he who cares enough to walk with your life's lonely journey will come on time. The man was bandaged in the grave clothes. He came out of the grave. Now he's out there. And Jesus said to the people, unwrapped him, unbind him, and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Why didn't Jesus unbind Lazarus? That's not his business. His business is to give him life. The guys who wrapped him can unwrap him. I find that in my own denomination, many of believers are wrapped by the denominational tradition. You know the Anglicans, even if it is really, really wonderful, and they're singing these hymns, they will never clap their hands. Uh-uh. Mm-mm. It's not very English to clap your hands if you're singing a hymn. But let them sing songs that are spiritual songs that we compose. My friends, they're clamping, they're dancing, they're jumping around. Yeah, but if it comes to a proper hymn singing, uh, you better be like a soldier. Now, that's a tradition. That's a tradition. And some of my Anglican guys do not believe that the Holy Spirit can anoint you with power to minister. They say, well, the, Pe- the Pentecostals are the guys who have monopoly on the Holy Spirit. My friend, that is also a tradition. I declare to them, unbind them. I unbind you to be a man and a woman who is free to serve God because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That God's people are released to serve. God's people are released to worship. God's people have the freedom. Freedom. I don't know about your Presbyterian church, but for me, when the revival came into my, into my church, people were released. Women were released. Men were released. Children and young people were released to serve the Lord. Unbind him. Let him go. Let him be a free man. And hope is yet to come. And I have seen that as it was in the days he was in Bethany, laughter replaced mourning. The glory of God was manifested in Bethany. Jesus changed their hopelessness into yet joy and celebration. Today, I'm asking the same God in Christ to transform the Christian body into a vibrant movement, even in America, just as it is in Uganda. That that the Americans will wake up to the sense that we have a mission on our life. The Great Commission is on our doorsteps. They'll get up with a desire to go out there and proclaim to the whole world that Jesus is alive. And he still saves, as he used to save. And he will save because he's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Let me finish. I finish with a great invitation to you, my dear friends, brothers and sisters. I invite you to come to my country. I invite you to come to Uganda and get some infection. The Holy Spirit infection of the fire. And come back to this great city lit to be gospel witnesses. I invite you to come and share with us our openness to the truth of the word of God and to the dynamic power of the word of God. 
I come, I, I, I come to you to invite you to come to my country and be part of what the Lord is doing as I speak in my country. Because I believe very strongly that when your ancestors brought the gospel to us, it is not us now to keep it, it's us to give it back to you. You gave it freely to us, and I want to give it back to you also freely. I want you to come that today the Lord is moving the church all over Europe to Africa, Africa to Asia, Asia to America, because the great ingathering is taking place. I want you to be part of that ingathering. I want you to be counted as part of what God is doing in his world through his church. I invite you to come. Come share the sweetness of fellowship that the Lord has given us. And we will want to follow you too. Follow you to carry the burden that you are also shouldering in this country. Because together, the glory of the Lord will come. Because I believe there is still hope for this world. Through the message of the gospel of Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, there is nothing too difficult for you. Father, before me are your people on whom you are banking for the great move of your ministry. The young men and women that you have raised in Covenant College are at this material time raised for a purpose of the world. Father, when Jesus went into Bethany, the darkness over Bethany was rolled away. The sadness that was in that village was lifted. The hopelessness that was in that family was translated into joy and celebration. Many homes in this country do not know what constant joy is. Many homes in this country do not know what peace is. In this college, you are building up a people, a great army that can go and speak hope to many people in this nation. Father, I rejoice in my heart because I can only sit in the spirit that among these young people, you are raising a people that you are going to entrust a great gospel to, that as they get out of the gates of this college and go out into the open world, they're going up with, out with a message of hope to a nation, to a people, to a family that needs to know that God cares, that God weeps that God is concerned with little details and big issues, that God is a God who is eminent and walks with his people, the God who will love to walk with us in everyday life's experience, that there is a hope for even people who are prone to suicide and people who are wasting away, that there is a hope to people who do not know what it is to know the light of God. You are the resurrection and the life. Many of us do not have that hope. Many religions don't have that hope. That there is a continuity with you. That there is a hope beyond what we know and beyond what we experience. The messengers are here this morning. Father God, I want to pray that you will lay your hands on individuals this morning. I want to ask that your spirit will convict and your spirit will convince people here today to lay their lives at the foot of the cross and at the feet of Jesus Christ. 
the Lord who promised I'm with you to the close of the age. Father, I cry that this generation will not miss your visitation and you will not pass them by, but that you will raise a Joseph generation to be able to stand amidst the ungodliness of our time, willing to serve the God of heaven and willing to bring heaven on earth in the lives of many that your kingdom may be extended and hope may come into our hopeless world. Thank you. I thank you for the leadership of Covenant College, and I pray blessings upon them. I pray that you will continue to uphold them and give them vision for this great college. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you and watch over you. The Lord be your shepherd. The Lord put in your heart the great hope of resurrection, that which only Jesus Christ demonstrated after dying and three days rose again and is no longer dying because he's seated at the right hand side of God. The next people to rise again is you and me at the day when he will come to judge the quick and the dead. May that hope linger in your heart, grow in momentous in your heart, and become a fire that will rage to movement, that will engulf the whole globe because it has started in Covenant College. The Lord bless you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The proceeding was provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia and available at itunes.covenant.edu.